And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord Jesus, we thank you that some 2,000 years ago you gave these words to your disciples. They learned them, internalized them, wrote them down, and here we sit some 2,000 years later. Lord, just as you opened the scroll, just as you opened the scripture to your disciples on the road to Emmaus, would you open up the word here tonight? Lord, would you be our teacher and the one who opens the scroll? We thank you for that, Lord, in your name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to do a, uh, what I'm going to do is whenever I have the occasion to do so, I'll just dip into the Lord's Prayer and preach on a little section, and maybe after about two years, we'll have a whole series on the Lord's Prayer as we piece it together. So, uh, but tonight, I want to do this little opening and just the address, our Father, who, who, uh, our Father in Heaven, and of course, these leading up words. So just a little background, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and the best way to understand the Sermon on the Mount is as Jesus' authoritative summary of the whole Bible. It's Jesus' authoritative summary of the whole Bible. He sits down and says, let me tell you what I was saying and doing all through all of the Old Testament. So it's his authoritative summary. And for that reason alone, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are a treasure. And I would like to issue this challenge. I know Kelly Hahn is memorizing uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I want to issue the challenge to people to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. I think it would revolutionize your life uh, if you did so. Um, But at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' summary of the Old Testament, is this teaching on prayer. And, And remember, as Bible writers wrote... Very often it's the center of what they wrote that is the, the pinnacle, the peak, the heart of what's going on. So I, must, I want to suggest that Jesus' teaching on prayer here, and the Lord's Prayer in particular, uh, is the most important part. It's the engine room of the Christian life. It is the generative core from which everything else flows. And for that reason, it is incredibly, incredibly important and incredibly precious Now, before Jesus gets to the prayer proper, he gives two don'ts, two things to avoid regarding prayer. And the first is don't pray to be seen. This has to do, I think, primarily with motive, right? He he cites people who prayed in prominent places in, you know, religious garb, and their motive was that people would go, isn't he a nice boy? Isn't he a good religious fellow? So he's saying, first of all, let your motive not be to fit in with people, to impress people. Let your motive have nothing to do with people at all. Forget who's looking. In fact, try to get a situation where nobody can look so that your father who sees in secret will see. He uses this word in secret. It's, it's their word for closet. And the closet was the only building in Palestine or the only room in Palestine at the time that you could lock. 
So the idea is a very interior, secret, quiet place that no one else can see. And I like this way of translating it. Jesus says that the Father is watching there. The Father's watching. Think not of the father watching like with a ruler ready to slap you, but think of like the father of the prodigal son watching. He's watching every one of our hearts, the secret place in every one of our hearts to see if we turn toward him, to see if we want to turn toward him and call out to him and find him. He's looking for us. And Jesus says, you should get your motive to be this. I want to please my father. I want to call out to my father. I want that to be my motive. Now, Jesus is also here revealing his motive. Right? One of the reasons he could be so resilient against all opposition is because he didn't pray to be seen by people. He prayed to seek his father and to hear from his father. Look for the reward in the secret place where your father is watching before you ever think to turn to him. And then he says, the second don't is don't rely on your activity. This has to do with the manner of your approach to God. We don't access God by our efforts. Now, faith calls forth effort, but our access to God is not based on how much we pray, how eloquently we pray, how long we pray. Jesus is saying, listen, it's not your efforts that persuade God to hear you. Now, I kind of think that one of the ways of thinking about Jesus' ministry is as a character witness for God. You have all of history, and people think of God in certain ways, and they say God is like this and God is like that, and Jesus comes along and says, I know God, and I'm here to tell you he's not like that. And Jesus is saying God is not such that you need to twist his arm to hear you. He is already favorably disposed towards you. We don't inform him of our needs when we come to him, right? He doesn't find out, oh my goodness, you have this need. He knows what we need before we ask him. Prayer changes us because it brings us into the Father's presence. He's already favorably disposed towards us. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm your mediator, not your eloquence or the amount that you pray. Then he says, pray like this. And I love this because it's very simple. All right, here's how you pray. Just imagine somebody saying, here's how you do it. And he does it. It's a very straightforward and simple approach. I think the Lord's Prayer is, um, among other things, a window into the prayer life of Jesus himself. It's it's incredibly intimate because he's opening up sort of the, the architecture of his own heart in relationship to the Father. He's inviting us into the intimacy of his relationship with the Father. It tells us a lot about him. So just that we have these words is a great privilege. And I think it's often the case that many, many people feel like they don't know how to pray. All right, let's pray. And people are like, what do I do? do?" People feel, you know, tongue-tied. Well, the beauty of it is Jesus said, well, here, let me show you how to pray. And he gives us these words. And here's the beauty of it. Everybody in this room already has the Lord's Prayer memorized. Right? I mean, however you came to it, whatever your religious background, I think probably everybody in here already has it memorized. Therefore, you already have a treasure of teaching about prayer in your heart that he can unpack and unfold for you as he is with you. Is, uh, are the armbrusts here? Oh, all right, he's not here. I'm going to pick on Caleb. If you've ever, everybody know Caleb armbrust? If you talk to Caleb for long, you'll know that he, 
you'll often get to the subject of golf. He's, a, he's an avid golfer, and every time I talk to him, it doesn't matter how much time goes by, he, he, something about golf comes up. And he recently just started taking golf lessons. Right? He's got a golf pro, and he's taken two lessons, and he's going on about how amazing it is. So, you know, the guy watches the swing and says, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, let me adjust this, let me do this, and how much it's making a difference in his game. All right? And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you have somebody who knows what they're doing with you showing you how to do it. That's what we have in the Lord's Prayer, except it's not golf, it's not carpentry, it's not plumbing. It's the most important thing we can do, which is pray to our Father in secret. So we have the words of our Lord, and we have his presence with us to teach us in simplicity and to help us along the way. That should be very, very relieving. A couple just general observations about the Lord's Prayer. It's simple. I mean, it's simple. I think it's also profound, but at a very, at a very elementary level, it's simple. It's for beginners. Like, I think the Lord's Prayer is for beginners and for masters of prayer. It's for both. And I think that when you look at the Lord's Prayer, one way to summarize all this is Jesus teaches us to pray briefly, simply, and fervently. Don't need a lot of eloquence. Don't need a lot of vocabulary. And that should be a relief. It should make us go, oh, I have this access, and I don't need to be this special professional. It frees us, I think, to know that we don't have to pray a lot. It frees us to pray more. It frees us to punctuate our day with just brief moments of, Father, help. You know, Father, God hears those prayers. Father, help. Here's another good prayer. Jesus. Just, you don't know what's going on. You think about somebody, and you, you care about them, and you don't. Jesus help. I think God hears those prayers. I think that's something we learn from the Lord's Prayer. And then finally, just by general observation about the Lord's Prayer, I think the Lord's Prayer is both something we should recite, we should pray as it is, and something that we can meditate on and unpack word by word. And kind of use as a guide. Does that make sense? I don't think it's either or. I really don't. I don't think, I think Jesus gave it to his disciples and he wanted them to memorize it. But he wanted them to then, as they memorize it, to internalize it and let it begin to shape, again, the architecture of their own heart and the way they pray, shape the way they think about God. So I think both things, I I think Jesus wants us to do both. So tonight, what I want to zero in on specifically in this prayer is the address our Father in heaven, all right? Our Father in heaven. And I'm actually going to go in the order, if you know, how many people know it in Latin? Anybody know it in Latin? I mean, some of the LLS kids and Marshall kids know it in Latin. What's the first word? Pater. We're going to start with Father, then our, and then in heaven. So let's start with Father. This is the first one. And what I want to suggest is to call God Father takes faith. All right, it takes faith in Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. We say, Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, all right, the first thing you need to know is call God Father. That takes faith. And I want to get a little bit into why. First, our context. I think we have to remember and realize that we're in a context when fatherhood is in trouble, right? When people are tearing down the patriarchy and canceling toxic masculinity and the examples of fatherhood in culture, popular culture, are a wreck. 
we're messed up about fatherhood, and we need help. We need a, a clarity of understanding. But in all honesty, I think probably throughout much of human history, it's been troubled times for fatherhood. I mean, has any of back to LLS kids, have you read the Greek myths? They, there's some really seriously messed up stuff about fatherhood in there. The Greeks called Zeus father. And this is at first troubling because you're like, oh, well, we kind of like the Greeks. But what the Greeks meant by calling Zeus father is something very different. They meant that the gods are like people. They're like the gods in the Marvel movies. They're just normal messed up people with lots of powers. And that's what Zeus is like. Think about what Zeus is like in those stories. He's sometimes nice, sometimes, but he's often egotistical, tyrannical, unpredictable, dangerous. You don't know when he's going to fly off, fly off the handle. And what the Greeks are saying by calling Zeus father is that the gods are a lot like people. But that's not, precisely not, what Jesus is saying. Jesus is doing very, something very different when he calls us to address God as father. I would put it this way. In Scripture, the fatherhood of God is presented as a critique of human fatherhood. Does that make sense? Jesus is not saying, God is like you fathers. He says that in some ways in other places. He's saying, the father, my father, I'm here as a character witness. He's not like that. He's like this. Let me show you. Christians believe that God has always been father, that there was never a time that the father was without his son, and that there was never a time that Jesus was without the father, that the fatherhood of God has priority before all human history and all human fathers. And so what Jesus is saying here about Christians is that Christians are people who talk to God like they're Jesus Christ. We talk to God like we're Jesus Christ. We're not Jesus Christ. But he says, call my father, father. He invites us into his relationship. He's the unique son of God. There will, no, there will never be another unique son of God like him. But as adopted children, we're invited into his relationship with the father. Now, keep in mind that what Jesus said to his, these, his hearers here would have been shocking. Okay, remember when later in the, gospel, or in the Gospel of John, when he says, well, God is my father, remember what they do? They take up stones to stone him. You don't call God father. He is far too transcendent. And here's Jesus calling God father, and then he's turning around to us and saying, call my father father. You address him as father. What nerve, what gall, what presumption, who do we think we are? That should be what we think. That should be how it feels to say, ah, I don't know. I mean, you know, Jesus almost got stoned for it. How much more us for calling God Father? That's, that's presumption, especially knowing our brokenness and our sinfulness. We do not deserve to call God Father. But that is precisely the point that Jesus is making. You don't deserve it, but you want to follow me, and I am inviting you into my relationship with the Father, and I'm going to take care of it. And I invite you to say, call my father your father. We do it because our teacher has invited us into his relationship with the father. We don't do it because we deserve it or we feel like it. We do it because our teacher has commanded us. He's passing on something of his own priceless 
relationship with the Father to us. It's an incredible privilege. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of maybe when you were younger, you met somebody who you really admired or who somebody was very important or just somebody that was a station or two above you. And they said, well, call me. And they said, by the first name, you ever had that experience and you just can't do it. Right. You're just like, I, I, no, I, Mr. You know, I can't do it. All right. I can't bring myself to that level of intimacy, to, to that level of, of authority. Or maybe you've had the experience of staying in someone's house. Has anybody had this experience where you stay in someone's house? It's a really nice house. Maybe you don't know them too well. And they're like, our house is yours. Just do whatever you want. Eat, we eat whatever you want. I don't know about you, but I just do not feel the freedom to stir out of my room in a lot of situations like that. It's kind of like that. All right. We should, we should stop and appreciate how spectacular it is that we get to call God Father. And... I think there's a learning curve in sort of learning to be bold about it. But we should be bold because our Lord Jesus beckons us to take our place alongside him and enter into, participate, emulate his relationship with the Father. It is astoundingly precious that we have this privilege. We pray by borrowing the sonhood of Jesus. By borrowing that, participating in that. And by the way, Keep in mind that it's the father in the first place who sent Jesus to say, tell them, call me father. And it's the Holy Spirit that is poured out in our heart that stirs up inside of us to call us God, the father. So it is father, son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity that is surrounding us saying, come into relationship with God, the father. Through the gift of the son, we're beloved children who have inherited everything from the father and our Lord calls us to address him as father. I'm going to read this quote by Oswald Chambers. But I don't feel that God is my father. Jesus said, say it. Say our father. And you will suddenly discover that he is. Don't pray according to your moods, but resolutely launch out on God and say our father. And before you know where you are, you are in a larger room. The door into a moral or spiritual emancipation which you wish to enter is a word. Immediately, you are prepared to abandon your reserve and say the word. The door opens and in rushes the Godward side of things. And you are lifted to another platform instantly. Say it. Say Father. Amen? Amen. R. Isn't this good? You can go all night on each one of these. R. It's super important. In R is the implication to love. Again, Jesus is the only unique son of God. We are adopted sons, sons and daughters of God. But immediately, if we say pater, noster, or our father, we look around and find out it's not just us and Jesus. It's not just us and Jesus and the father. But it's a whole family of adopted sons and daughters that he is gathering together. Every time you pray this way, our Father, it turns every individual prayer into a corporate prayer. It turns every private prayer into a prayer for other Christians. We are together. We are gathered by the Son and brought into the Father's presence. So by praying our Father, it, should, it, it kind of implicitly wires our brains and our instincts and nudges us in the direction of sacrifice for our brothers and sisters, right? 
It nudges us in that direction. It, it reminds us kind of in the back of our head. We're learning from our older brother to pray. And he immediately reminds us of our other brothers and sisters. Now, I like the song, I Come to the Garden Alone. Everybody know this song? You know, I Come to the Garden Alone. And it, it has a lot to do with me and my relationship with Jesus. And that's great. But here when Jesus is teaching on prayer, right in the way we address God, we're reminded of our brothers and sisters to whom we've been united by the blood of Jesus, to the family of God that we're called. Even in the closet, he reminds us of our siblings. Maybe especially he reminds us of them to turn us from ourselves and to turn us to caring for them. I think there's a sinful tendency to try to turn God into our codependent teddy bear. But our wise older brother, he immediately leads us to our siblings, and he calls us to the joy of being poured out for one another. Again, humility, you've heard this said maybe, is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Right? It's we go with our needs to the Father, and he he cares, but then he touches our heart with the needs of our siblings and turns us outward to them. And we begin to follow our Lord through his humble path of being poured out for others. We begin to have fellowship with him in his poured out life for people. This is why Paul could celebrate, I love this life of loving others because I am in fellowship with my older brother, Jesus. So if you read through the Lord's Prayer, there's no I, me, mine. Those words don't occur here. It's our Father. Amen? So our teaches us to love our brothers that Jesus has united us to. And then finally, in heaven. This speaks to hope. It speaks to the hope and longing of all of our hearts. The word father that Jesus uses is intimate and it's personal. But in heaven is is kind of transcendent. It's very transcendent. It's way beyond us. We think of this separation, this distance between ourselves and God. God is our Father. He's intimate. He cares for us, but we don't manipulate Him. He's not available for our pet projects. And heaven here, I think, is speaking of the dwelling place of God itself. It is the dwelling place of God where He dwells in inapproachable light. But remember in the Gospel of John, especially in chapter 14, Jesus says, look, in my Father's house, it's a big house. There's a lot of room. And I am going to prepare a place for you. Right? What should begin to ring in our hearts when we hear Jesus talk about our Father in heaven is the home of our hearts. It's where we long for, where we were created to dwell. We were made to run on the presence of God. And the further we get from the presence of God, the darker it gets, the more confusing it gets, the more things are broken apart. But we were designed to live in the presence of God. And when Jesus says in heaven, he's speaking of the hope of the promise that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Think about it. Again, have you ever gone to a friend's house and they've prepared a room for you? It's kind of touching. Think about the Son of God preparing a place for you. I don't care what the room is like. It's him preparing it for me in his father's house. It can be, it can, I mean, it can be greater. It can be a hovel, but he prepared it for me. Amen. 
All homesickness is homesickness for that place. If you've ever experienced homesickness in your life, whether it's literally maybe going back to some place in your past or it's a homesickness, you're not at home or you're, you're separated from loved ones, that homesickness God gave us to speak of our longing to be in our Father's house, to be where our elder brother is magnified and glorified and our Father is honored. We know it only in part. We only get glimpses of it in Scripture, little images But everywhere in our lives, we're touched with pangs for home, for wholeness, for belonging, for goodness. We glimpse it all throughout our lives. And Jesus would tell us that what you're longing for is that place that I'm preparing for you in my father's house. Because he is at the father's right hand, heaven is now our home. And Paul, I love Paul because he cultivated a longing for his home even while he gave himself to the work that he was given to here. Remember, in heaven, in Scripture, it says that every spiritual blessing is there. Right? There are riches that God wants us to have that cannot be touched by the market, joy that cannot be matched by any experience in this life, security that cannot be shaken by any events of history. And he really does want us to get homesick. He really does. He's inviting us. Think about it. Jesus himself wanted to go back, didn't he? He said, guys, if you loved me, you'd be excited for me that I'm going back to my father. And I want you to have that excitement for me, but also for yourselves. This in heaven, our father who is in heaven should cultivate a lively hope in our heart. Right? It should stir up hope and joy no matter how bad our lives are. Our citizenship, as Paul tells us, is in heaven. And the more we let our hearts be shaped by our citizenship there, the better citizens we are here, whatever nation that we're sojourners in. Again, I can't help but read this quote by C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And you can, it's true, you go look. William Wilberforce, maybe single most important person responsible for ending the slave trade in England. Man, that guy had his heart set on home. He had his heart set on the promises of Jesus. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Our anchor is hidden within the veil, and the storms of this life cannot undo us. Let's set our hearts on that home. Hope in all the good things that come with that phrase, Father, our Father who art in heaven. I want to read this quote. This is from uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam. He says, and this is maybe a better summary than my sermon, God is called Father so that you might know him as kind and good. He is addressed in heaven so that you might lift your souls there, neglecting earthly goods. He is called R, lest anyone appropriate anything to oneself alone, since he brings his graces to all in one group, and so that in this sense there might be any equality between kings and servants. So, just this address, it's the spirit of address. Call me Father. 
right, that we open with. I want to encourage us in. Jesus invites us to call his Father, Father. And because we trust him, we're bold enough to do that. And as we say are, we recognize our calling to love one another. And as we say in heaven, it sets our hope on the promises of God, where at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So faith says Father, love says are, and hope says which art in heaven. Amen? Amen.